the brand of our company is the way we present our properties, not necessarily the price point of the real estate. Every single listing of ours needs to be curated and presented in a certain way. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have Sean Osher. Sean is the founder of Core, the number one boutique real estate marketing and sales company in New York with over $6 billion in sales. In this episode, we'll be going over how to break into the luxury real estate market, how to get into large real estate development projects, and how to create an amazing team. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, Sean, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Sure. Thanks for having me on, Sean. At least I'll have an easy time remembering your name. Yeah. I'm Sean Asher. I'm the owner and founder of Core Real Estate, which is a luxury real estate marketing and sales company based in New York City. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you on the show because I've never had someone uh, on the show yet who has done luxury buildings. And on your website, I've seen just some amazing photos of some of your listings. So do you want to talk a little bit about the luxury market and how you got into it? Sure. You know, it kind of just evolved organically. It wasn't really a strategic plan of mine. I started as a rental agent, really as a second job. It wasn't going to really be a career of mine. And I started renting apartments in New York City and uh, obviously, the higher the rent, the bigger the commission, which equated into more money. So I was attracted to doing bigger deals and better deals and more deals. And then after two years of doing that, I segued into sales and kind of organically moved into larger you know, properties. You know, something that I think people don't really understand is that there's not a huge difference between selling a studio apartment and a luxury penthouse of $50 million. The concept is the same. The level of service and the job we do is essentially the same. You want to just shout out your website real quick? Uh, sure. It's core, C-O-R-E-N-Y-C dot com. Yeah. So if you guys go on the website, you can check out some of their listings and they are some of the most beautiful like luxury penthouses, $30 million, $50 million. And like you said, when you're doing it, it's basically the same job as selling a $1 million home here in the Bay Area. Right. And we do sell plenty of $1 million homes as well. You know, we do a wider range, we have a wide price range. You know, most importantly, the brand of our company is the way we present our properties, not necessarily the price point of the real estate, but the way we present the real estate. You know, every single listing of ours needs to be curated and presented in a certain way. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how you differentiate like a $50 million property versus a $1 million property? Uh, sure. I mean, you know, we first and foremost, when I started Core, I thought of ourselves as more of a marketing company, you know, because what we do is we market and sell. We happen to sell real estate. So when I looked at the industry, when I started Core, it was very, very kind of underperforming with respect to the way things were being marketed. 
I found inspiration from other industries, retail, the auto industry, and saw that, you know, we were making huge amounts of money, but the way we were marketing was not at the same level as the income we were receiving. We were really the first company to start professional photography. Before Core, a lot of real estate agents in the local market were using disposable cameras or, you know, phone cameras. And, you know, I decided to hire in-house photographers, have copywriters, really create beautiful brochures and start presenting the properties in an elevated way. And that's kind of what, you know, instigated the brand. Yeah. And how long ago was this? This was about 16 years ago. Wow. Do you want to go ahead and just tell us your whole story? Because it seems like you have a very interesting past. Sure. I'll make it as brief as possible. Some highlights. I was born in uh, Johannesburg, South Africa, and grew up there, went to school, and lived under the apartheid regime, which was a very interesting perspective. Grew up in a creative family. At a very young age, I was, you know, do, I did a lot of sports, a lot of performing. I was in entertainment and then started a band. I was a guitar player and then a, a jazz saxophone player. And I wanted to pursue my career of being a jazz musician. So I applied to Berkeley College of Music, got accepted, really didn't have money. I basically put a backpack on, took my saxophone, got on an airplane and brought about $400 with me, landed in Boston, enrolled at Berkeley. And then after a couple of weeks, I ran out of money. Couldn't find a job where I would have cleaned toilets if someone would have hired me. But Boston at that time was a very difficult place to be without a green card as a student with no money. So I got a ride down to New York City. And when I arrived in New York, I felt at home immediately. I went out, looked for a job, got a job as a waiter. First day I was out and then managed to find the new school, which was had an incredible jazz program and basically put myself through music school performed as a jazz musician, which is a very difficult thing to do, and needed a side gig. And I opened up a newspaper one day that said, make money fast, become a real estate agent, uh, no experience required. And I was like, that's me, I'm going to sign up for that. So I went, I got my real estate license in a couple of weeks and started working at a very small company downtown, became successful very quickly renting apartments, and then moved to a more substantive high-end sales company. And in my first year there, I became the number one broker downtown. And for every year for the next 13, 14 years that I was there, I was the number one broker in the company and the number one broker downtown. And started Core in 2005. And the rest, as they say, is history. There, there are a lot of details in between, but I'm sure you, only, you don't have hours on the show. Yeah, it's very exciting to hear that story. What do you think differentiated you between everyone else who was doing the same profession? You know, some basic fundamentals, you know, I, I talk to agents a lot. I coach a lot of people. I've built the careers of a lot of agents during the course of, you know, owning core. And it's really, you know, it's not rocket science. It's the essential things you read in almost every business book. It's the things, you know, and when I talk to my team of agents, I say, it's the things that your parents taught you. If you do those things, you will be successful. And what are those basic things? Be on time. Be polite. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Have a high level of integrity. Treat people with respect. Win their trust. Present yourself in a certain way. Be educated. All of those really basic, simple, fundamental things in real estate, if you do those, you have a high chance of success. 
You know, you also need to have the ability to be able to get back on the horse when you get kicked off, because I can guarantee you, you will get kicked off more than once. And there's a certain mindset you need to have as a real estate agent. It's that entrepreneurial mindset where, you know, no one tells you where to go, what to do, when to work, how many hours to work. You have to be self-motivated, self-driven, and have the ability to deal with defeat and failure, because that will face you almost every day in this business. So that mindset and a strong foundation of principles and morals will get you very far in this business. Yeah. And I listened to another podcast and he was saying that New York is like the center of a lot of these like financial disasters, right? Because 2001, we had September 11th, 2008, we had the GFC. And then now we have coronavirus. New York is obviously like one of the most heavily impacted areas. So I'm sure you've probably been knocked off your horse a couple of times. Do you want to talk about how you've been impacted and how you're able to climb back out? Oh, I mean, I've been impacted in a huge way. And, you know, this coronavirus pandemic is no different. It's, you know, every crisis is different and they're all terrible. I mean, the thing that's terrible about this one is that, you know, it's through no one's fault. People are dying. You know, I don't know anyone who has not been affected. So this is broad. You know, this is a global pandemic. Whereas the other ones were more localized to some extent. 9-11, certainly, you know, the tech boom, 2008 was a global financial crisis, but it affected some people more than others. I mean, I think it's moments like these that define who we are. It's moments like these that bring out the best in us and the worst in us. And, you know, it's important to rise to the occasion and, you know, we'll be judged on moments like this. But, you know, it's moments like these where we respond, you know, and how we respond. And, you know, all you can do is your best and, you know, try and have a guiding light that sees you through this, knowing that there will be light on the other side. And there always is, you know, if you look at history and you look at 2001, even before 2001, you know, that wasn't the first major crisis. There were many other crises in New York City and globally. Just in our recent memory, we looked to 2001. But, you know, if we look at history, you know, as civilization and cities, we do rally. There are people who lead us through these times. We're seeing that right now in New York City with Governor Cuomo, who is brilliant in the way he's leading the city through this. And New Yorkers are very resilient. They always come back. It's a very strong city. We rally together. You know, the misconception about New Yorkers is that we're rude, arrogant, you know, don't have time for anyone, which generally, you know, from the outside looks like it's true. But in moments of crisis, the city rallies together. And we've seen that in our healthcare workers, you know, and the people who have really helped usher us through this really difficult time. And when this passes, which it will, and we look out at the end of this, we're going to look back and say, we rose to the occasion and things will be fine. Yeah, well said. Are you doing anything or are you telling your team to do anything differently now that we're in this tricky situation? I mean, first thing I'm telling my team is to stay healthy and do what the governor advises us to do, because nothing is more important than that, right? Everything else is secondary to our health. But, you know, above and beyond staying in place and doing our part and making sure we follow orders, you know, this is a moment of opportunity and time, right? We've never usually had the time to stop and do the things that we, you know, would like to do. Very often in the, our business, we don't have enough time. The, you know, the day begins, before we know it, the day ends, the week ends, the month ends, and we have a to-do list of things that we never managed to get to. 
So, you know, I've told all of my agents that they need to take advantage of this time and do certain things that they ordinarily have not had the time to do. Call your contacts, get your business in order, work on your brand, work on your business plan, start setting seeds that will germinate a year or two or three from now. Take a very long approach and look to your business. You know, this thing is evolving. You know, it was day by day. Now it's week by week. And before we know it, it's actually going to pass. And we don't want to be in a position where we look back and say, oh, I could have, would have, and should have. You know, seize the moment now, look at, make the most out of the situation we're in. And, you know, that's really what I'm advising my agents to do. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of activities that people can be doing now instead of just wait, like, instead of just watching TV and Netflix. They can actually be cold calling people or, I guess, you know, talking to their past clients or contacts and just trying to make that warm connection. Yeah, I think that's really critical. I think the thing we need now in this pandemic more than ever is a human connection. But it's ironic, though, that we're kind of finding more human connection in this moment of separation than we did when we were out and about and, you know, everyone was connected. Right. And so that's really important to make that personal human connection, which you can do. I mean, we're on a video call right now, and it's awesome. We wouldn't be doing this, by the way, if we didn't have this technology at our disposal. You know, I might have been too busy in my schedule. You might have been too busy. You know, we probably wouldn't be meeting in person anyway. So I think there are a lot of ways that we can take advantage of this and still remain connected on a very human level. And I think that's what we need to focus on right now. Exactly. And what are you doing for your own marketing? Because I know you said that you did a great job with marketing the properties and that's how people want to have you as your, their listing broker. But what about everybody else? Are you doing like mailing campaigns or cold calling? I'm not cold calling, but I'm definitely, you know, I have a weekly newsletter, which is pretty widely read called Padkos, P-A-D-K-O-S, shameless plug. And we're working on marketing initiatives. You know, we do our reports, continuing to do our reports. You know, a very important component of our job is to be the communicator of information. People want to know what's going on. We want to have full transparency. The market now is dead. We want to show the numbers and we want to be fully transparent. So from a marketing aspect, you know, a lot of people are not selling their homes right now. A lot of people are not out buying homes right now. There is some activity, but certainly not the volume of what we've seen. So, you know, to adapt to this market, adjust, be nimble, work on marketing initiatives that make sense for this time. You know, I've done more podcasts in the last, I have my own podcast and I've done more sessions in the last five weeks than I have done ever before because people have time actually now to sit have a conversation and engage. So I'm being productive in those ways, um, which are a little bit different than normal circumstances, but not a complete left turn. Yeah, I feel the same way. I've done more YouTube videos and podcasts during this time because you have the time to do it. And then just because you do it doesn't mean you have to release it all now anyways. It can be for when this all passes you have the time to do your other activities, but now you don't have to focus on the podcast or videos anymore. Right, 100%. Yeah. And when it comes to luxury listings, like how do you treat a client differently compared to those million-dollar ones? No differently. Every client is special. Every client has their own needs. Just because someone can afford more money than the next person, no, there's no difference. Your level of integrity, honesty, all of those basic principles – and that's the principle of core. You know, I don't care if it's the person who cleans the floors or myself. You know, we have a certain standard that's required in building our brand. And, you know, it's a team effort. We just have different roles within that team. 
buyers have different needs. They've got different budgets, but they shouldn't be treated differently. Their expectations are different. And, you know, to understand what the expectation of a buyer for, you know, $500,000 is versus the expectation of someone buying a property for $50 million, their expectations obviously understandably are different. They expect maybe to be treated differently. But, you know, the essence is really the same. They're looking at buying a home. They're looking at spending a lot of money. They're looking at making a major investment. And our job as real estate agent is to shepherd that process and make them as comfortable with that process of that purchase as much as possible, whether it's $500,000 or $50 million. Ironically, I've found that the $500,000 buyer, it's a lot more painstaking for that process than the $50 million buyer because of their relative net worth relative to the value of the property that they're buying. Yeah, it makes sense. Like, I feel like some people who are on the lower end, they care so much, right? But people who have a lot more, they're willing to let go and they want to be more flexible in negotiations. Yeah, and then they'll make quicker decisions. You know, I find that the bigger budget people generally will make decisions quicker because maybe they've had more experience. You know, maybe it's less of an impact to their overall net worth. But, you know, we treat all of our buyers the same way when it comes to the level of service and expertise and ethics and integrity. Yeah, it's good to hear. I was always curious, who are the clients who go and purchase these $50 million buildings in terms of like a a profile? Well, you know, it's definitely changed over the course of my career. You know, almost 30 years ago, it used to be mostly people coming from finance, Wall Street brokers getting huge bonuses. They'd wait till bonus season. They'd see what money they got. And then they'd come out and they'd buy the, you know, fancy red Ferrari, the boat and the penthouse. You know, we've kind of seen a lot of wealth generated through things other than the financial markets over the last 15, 20 years, through technology, through entertainment. So we're seeing a lot of buyers globally. I mean, New York City is a global city, so it's very attractive to a lot of different buyers from a lot of different places in the universe, you know, from the West Coast of, you know, the United States all the way to Southeast Asia and pretty much everything in between. So the buyer profile is really very broad and, you know, it's surprising to see people from all different walks of life come in and look at real estate, especially luxury real estate. And what's astounding to me is how much wealth there is out there for luxury real estate. That's always, you know, surprising to me. What's surprising is there are people who are from another country who are buying these properties as well. And are they buying them as just like a second home or is that supposed to be their like main place of residence? I think the international buyer is looking, you know, anyone who can afford a $50 million home has two or three or four other residences. So, you know, some of them will use this home as a primary residence. Others will use it as a place to put their money as a sound investment. You know, if you look at real estate performance versus financial markets, real estate over the long term has always been the best investment and very sound. So I think sophisticated buyers who have a high net worth understand this. They look to diversify their portfolio over a different, you know, wide array of different product types, real estate being one of them, usually a great investment over the long term. And I think that's the general mindset of that buyer. Now, having said that, you know, real estate, I like to say it's one of the most irrational acts. How do you rationalize spending $50 million on an apartment? doesn't make sense. doesn't even make sense spending $500,000 on an apartment. That's a lot of money. 
But over the course of time, you realize that there's a value associated with that real estate. So our job as real estate agents is generally to rationalize an irrational act and make these buyers understand that what they're spending, it's worth what they're spending. And that over the course of time, it will appreciate and that investment will be good. So, you know, we see that, you know, people look at it from an investment standpoint, but also, you know, I say buying a piece of real estate is like falling in love because it is irrational. You know, people will walk into a home and they'll say, I love it. And if they can afford it, they'll generally buy it. So the same holds true. And the same reason why people are buying holds true, you know, globally. There's the money investment, but you also have to love the property that, you know, you're living in. It needs to resonate with you personally and speak to you in a way that maybe another $50 million apartment doesn't. Mm. I was also curious if you happen to know how they are financing the properties. Do they usually come with all cash, 50% down or 20% down for these properties? A large portion of these luxury buyers pay cash Wow, for their purchase. That's amazing. It is, yeah. Yeah, but so they're probably some kind of business owner who just has that much extra cash lying around and they don't need financing, which is pretty intense. Yeah, and you know, or, or maybe after the fact, after the closing, they'll refinance or they'll restructure their you know finances, you know, or the purchase of the apartment in a different way. But for the most part, they have the cash available to be able to afford, you know, not having to finance. And do they ever buy these as investments, where like you buy a fifty million dollar apartment and then rent it out to somebody for, I have no idea how much they rent out for, but is that ever the case or is this just kind of like a place to park their money and they leave it vacant? There is some of that where they'll buy and leave it vacant, but that's really not that many homes. Those are outliers. Most of the time, people who buy these apartments, I mean, they may not live in them the entire year, but they'll spend a couple of months a year in the apartment or they'll rent them out but it's not that often that you see $40, $50 million apartments sitting vacant with nothing going on. Yeah. I remember when I was living in Los Angeles and there's a place called Arcadia and a lot of Chinese investors who are buying these maybe like one or $2 million houses just for the land. And then they would scrape it down, build a brand new like you know house on it. And then they leave it vacant for 10 years until their kids are old enough to go to high school in America and then just live there. Yeah, I mean, I think those buys, if you look at, you know, the reasons why they were doing it, it was an investment in the future. So it's, you know, I have, I have a 529 plan for my, for my kids' college fund. I guess this would be the same concept. You know, they're investing in the future. Their kids would be staying in the homes while they're in college. And then eventually if they retire or, you know, so it's, it's really more of like a long-term investment for the family. Right. And just for, you know, scale and reference, what would a $50 million apartment rent for? It really depends on the apartment and, you know, it depends on where the rental market is. There's no real rule of thumb. I mean, generally, New York City real estate is not a great investment if you're looking for a cap rate that matches other places. You could get more immediate return on your investment other places. Buying real estate for, you know, in New York City is more of a long-term prospect, you know, and, you know, you don't really buy it to rent out to make a huge return. But, you know, a $50 million apartment could rent for as much as I actually just rented something which sold for $27 million, but I put a renter in there and they were paying, I think, $100,000 a month rent. It's a lot of money. Are they like some kind of like movie star or like? It was a celebrity. That's pretty cool. So I guess you get to, you know, uh, associate yourself with a bunch of celebrities on a regular basis. 
I do. I get, you know, this business has definitely exposed me to a lot of really smart, intelligent, creative, mostly well-known people. You know, when you can afford $50 million for an apartment or even 15 or $20 million for an apartment, you're generally well-known in your field of business. A lot of the time, these are celebrities, artists, performers. But, you know, I had a, another real estate agent say to me once we were doing a huge deal. We were selling a penthouse downtown to a big celebrity. And I said, oh, it must be cool working with the celebrity. And he said to me, anyone who can afford this apartment in my books is a celebrity. You know, that's really true. So, you know, we think of celebrities in the sense of generally people who are in movies or TV. But, you know, in today's day and age, you know, I'd say the biggest celebrity right now is Jeff Bezos. And he's a businessman, entrepreneur. Or Bill Gates, you know, there are celebrities as well. So I think anyone in this price range is, for the most part, a celebrity. Yeah, I think it's really cool that you're able to be working basically at the, you know, top tier of your field. And I was wondering if you can go back in time to kind of recreate your steps, what do you think, like, how do you get to where you are now? You know, going back to the fundamentals, don't lie. So if you break those fundamentals down, and the reason why, you know, your teachers and your parents tell you to do things a certain way, it's not because they want to bust your chops and be a pain in the ass. It's because those are the things that will make you successful. You know, study. Once you're an expert and you know what you're talking about, people will trust you and rely on your expertise and pay you a premium for that knowledge. So, you know, if I'm the guy who knows more about any penthouse sale in New York City and what the value is and why one should be worth more than the other, those buyers are going to value my opinion and they're going to rely on my expertise. So that's why you continue to study and know what's out there. Be on time, you know, be respectful, be responsive. You know, if someone asks you a question, don't make up a lie and say, you know, the answer when you don't. Be honest. Say, you know what, I don't know the answer to that, but make sure you find out the answer and respond to them and get them the information that they're looking for. It's very basic and fundamental, but, you know, it's not easy. These things are generally not easy to stay and do them consistently. You know, and I think if you do that in any business, you know, with some luck, a lot of hard work, tenacity, accepting that you will fail at certain things, you'll be successful. In, over the long term, there will definitely be moments that'll push you to the limit, that'll be trying, you'll be tempted to do other things. But if you stay the course on those basic fundamental things, you know, and, and that's what I did, you know, I never ever lied to my clients. I never pretended to know something I didn't. I've been a sponge for information. I love to read. I love to learn about what other people are doing in the industry. I love to share ideas and information. You know, a lot of the things that we did at Core, we were the first company to do them. And then very close on our heels were the other companies copying what we did. And people would say to me, aren't you upset that they copied you doing this? And I'd say, no, you know, I'm very flattered and I'm glad I could raise the bar in the industry. And, you know, I think the more we share ideas and information, the better we get as an industry and the more successful we can all be. And that's kind of been my mantra since day one. So, you know, I think when people see you giving back, People see you have an open mind. People see, you know, that you want to respond to them and you're trying to deliver the best you possibly can. That resonates with people. Yeah. I think that's been a reason, a part of the reason of, you know, some of my success. Yeah. So you have to give a lot of value first, be knowledgeable and share the information with everybody as much as you can. Yeah. Sounds good.
And would you say you differentiate from your competitors because you are a little bit more innovative in your process, like you look for inefficiencies in how the business is being done, and then you try to do something about it? I definitely think that, you know, a unique perspective that I have is my creative background. Having been a jazz musician, an artist, and coming from a creative background has definitely helped me in real estate. I think that will help you in any business. I think that's definitely been a great thing for me. I think the more creative you are in real estate, the more successful you could potentially be because a lot about a lot of what we do in real estate is solving problems and solving them creatively because no deal is ever the same, no buyer is ever the same, no seller is ever the same, no home is the same, and the way we present it should never be the same. Uh, there should be a consistency in quality, but a unique approach and a custom approach to every situation. And I think a creative mind lends itself to being more along the lines of solving problems in a different way that are not generic. And that's where value is added. So I think that, you know, having a creative background definitely helps. And if you look at some of the more successful people in the industry, they have creative backgrounds. They come from a place where they think outside of the box intuitively and do things a little bit differently. Right. I read Steve Jobs' biography a couple of years ago, and he said that you know he attributes a lot of his success because he had he had this very interesting like hippie background. Yeah, absolutely. I read his biography as well. I mean, and he was a genius, you know, brilliant innovator, a thinker, visionary, definitely not you know run of the mill personality. And if you look at most people who are incredibly successful and push the boundaries, they have that attribute. You know, Phil Knight, the creator of Nike, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, yeah, is a genius, but he definitely has that creative way of looking at things in a very unique way. Not cookie cutter, not textbook. I mean, the list is so long of great visionaries and people who've innovated. And I think the one thing they have consistently in common is their ability to see things from a different perspective. Right. And I think they're also so motivated that they learn on their own. Whereas most of us, we kind of go to school and get those knowledge like shoved down our brains, things that we don't really care about. But when you're truly passionate about something, you're going to go and start digging through the woods to find like the thing that you really want to learn about. Yeah. And there's nothing that replaces on-hand experience. You know, you can go to school, you can read, you can look at things, but until you actually do something yourself and experience it, nothing is going to, you know, be able to replace that. Right. So to transition from that, I actually saw on your website that you sometimes do new development deals. Yeah, a huge part of what we do, in fact, most of what we do at Core is we work along with developers in doing pre-development consulting, and then we create branding and marketing for these projects, and then we sell them. And that's a very creative process. It's actually the part of the business I love most because of my background and because of my real estate experience. So we will get hired by developers who will say to us, you know, what should we build? What should the building look like? How many units should there be? How big should the units be? What amenities does the building need? What finishes should go inside? Um, and then stage two is, all right, how do we create a brand for this building? And how do we communicate what we've built to the potential homeowner where we're expressing what the value of the home is? And then the third stage is, you know, presenting that and closing the deal. Yeah. How big is your development team? By design, we're small. So part, Core is a boutique company by design. You know, the team you get is very hands-on. The team you get is at the meeting. And we're not, you know, because what we provide is really our, it's the people. You know, we've built the brand, we've built the company. 
But it's really the people who make the difference. It's the people who are sitting next to the architect and the developer advising and consulting. So, you know, I have a team who consists of architect, designers, branding people, myself, sometimes salespeople, research. We're like a SWAT team. We're not like the army. We're like snipers. Nice. And how long does the whole process take for like a development project? It really depends a lot on a number of different factors. The first being the developer. Then there are many other factors, the architects, the designers, the local market, the zoning, getting approvals from the Department of Buildings, going through a landmarks process if there is one. There are a lot of layers that will change the schedule of a project the acquisition of the land, the land that it's built on, the circumstance, you know, what needs to be done on the particular site. But, you know, it ranges anywhere from start to finish. The shortest time I've seen a project done is probably three years from inception to completion. And that's really an accelerated time frame. I would say on average, if you look at most projects from acquisition of land and the developer's vision of the project, you know, and I'm talking about larger buildings, not single family homes. I would say the average time frame is anywhere from five to seven years from start of project to last unit sold and closed. So is a developer in charge of raising the funds, getting the financing, and then pushing it through planning and then getting the construction crew to go in? And then you guys just handle like the design parts? Yeah. I mean, I think if the developer is kind of a good analogy is like a movie. The developer is the director and the producer kind of in one. They have to raise the money. They've got to put the team together, which includes us, pre-development marketing, you know, all of the consultants, the architects, the engineers, the designers, the construction company, the financing. They're like the large orchestrator, you know, like they're the ringmaster in the circus. That's maybe a better analogy. And not because we have a lot of clowns, but because we have some animals, some clowns, some entertainers. It's a good mix of people. And it's also very entertaining. So, yeah, I think, you know, everyone has a role to fill. And the most successful projects that I've seen have been those where every team member knows what their role is and they're very efficient and work together as a team. Nice. Do you want to talk about your favorite project and maybe some of the numbers that were involved in it? Every project's been my favorite project. And I know that may sound really cheesy, But, you know, the beauty to me of doing what I do is that every project is unique in many aspects. Not only is the, you know, the site unique, but the client is unique. The team is unique because the buyer is usually different, right? What we like to do is we like to envision what the highest and best use is for the final product and who ultimately is going to pay a premium and what they expect to get for their money. And if we can get that right, that's the process of pre-development and marketing. And every project, whether it's been four units to, you know, we're working on a project now, it's a $2 billion project with almost 600 units. The process is almost the same and the, the level of creativity and insight is almost the same. So they're all my favorite because they all require that level of creativity and unique perspective and, you know, to create something from nothing and create the highest and best use. We've had, you know, some of the most successful projects in the history of New York City condos, you know, and those from the developer's perspective are their best because they 
make the most amount of money. But from a pre-development marketing and sales perspective, you know, we're every home, every apartment we're creating is going to be lived in by someone. And we take that very seriously. And we aim to achieve, you know, the best thing that could be performed and built on that particular site. Yeah. I'm kind of curious in terms of the numbers. So if you happen to have a deal that you happen to know of that was maybe the most profitable, you can kind of walk us through like, what did it cost to acquire the property? What did it cost for planning to construct the property? And then how much did it get the developer make on the back end when you finally sold all the units? So the most successful project that I was probably involved in was a new developer, someone who had very little experience in being a developer. You know, I will say luck is probably 60% of the equation, right? Timing of the market and luck. And any developer who is honest will tell you that. But this particular project, I think the developer brought it in 2008 when no one was buying anything. So give him a lot of credit for having the balls to go ahead and do that at that moment in time. And I think he paid $25 million for the building. One of the most beautiful buildings that I'd ever seen. I walked through it with him before he signed and I said, this is a no brainer. I know the world's in a shambles, but we'll get through this and you've got a beautiful asset here. I think his overall cost to complete the building was somewhere in the range of $75 million additional. So his whole project cost with financing and everything was maybe $150 million. And the building sold out for over $500 million. Was he selling it like piece by piece or just like a one giant building? No, 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 no. It was 53 different apartments broken up. It was a con- it was complicated. It was a conversion of a pre-existing building. The lender said it was their highest performing loan in the history of this, the fund, which is a huge successful fund. It was a home run in every sense. Yeah, that's amazing. And uh, do you have any complications in terms of rent control? Because I know New York is pretty heavily rent controlled. Not really. I mean, most developers need a building that they know they can either get vacant or a piece of land that's delivered vacant or a building that could be vacated over the course of a certain amount of time. So, you know, whenever you see rent stabilized or rent controlled tenants, that's usually not a great building to convert. There have been some because those tenants have rights and, you know, they usually will not vacate the apartment, understandably. So uh, those are not really great conversion developments. Yeah, that makes sense. How was he able to get $25 million to purchase the property in 2008 when all the markets were like, were frozen? I believe he called family, friends, called in every favor, took a huge risk, and then managed to get, you know, financing terms that were unfavorable in general time. And, you know, in times of distress, there are people out there with money who are looking at this as a moment in time where there's an opportunity. I've fielded probably 20 calls in the last couple of weeks with people with a lot of money saying, oh, you know, I got a call yesterday saying I have $100 million. I'm looking for some apartments. Please tell me where I can spend it. This is an opportunity. You know, the market is soft. I believe in the long-term prospect of New York City. I want to spend this money. And, you know, now is the time to buy. And if you look historically, that's been true. You know, now is the time to buy. You know, Warren Buffett always said, you know, do the opposite of what everyone is doing. And that's proven to be true. So I think the people with money now who are looking for the opportunities, who are going to spend it, will do very well in the long term. That is a super inspiring story. So because, I mean, 
this is his first development deal and he's willing to go in on a $25 million project and then get another, you know, 75 million in financing. That's crazy. But he made, you know, almost $400 million with that investment, you know, and as many for every success, there are probably 10 failures. Right. So, you know, development is a very risky business. You know, I know that developers and the industry gets a bad rap because they're perceived of as being like the evil, you know, greedy billionaires who don't care. And it's not an easy business. It's not easy to make money in it. There are so many different factors that have to come into consideration. Huge amounts of risk. Yes, when the payoffs come, they can be big. But for the most part, it's not that easy. And the payoffs are not usually as big as people think they are. Absolutely. But one thing this story taught me is to think big because here in the Bay Area, I think if you can get a plot of land for $3 million and then do your development, yeah, maybe you can make $10 million off of it, which is great. Huge, great return. I'm a huge fan of the Bay Area. I think there's a major shortage of housing in the Bay Area. I think there's not great housing in the Bay Area. I think that there's a huge opportunity if developers, small or large, have the opportunity to buy a piece of land, get it approved by the city, that's the difficult part, you know, and get the money together to deliver incredible product that buyers want to live in. And there's a potential to make money. And, you know, above making the money, it's nice to know that you're delivering something of value to people that they're going to have for the rest of their lives, probably. So there's, there's the opportunity there. I mean, the Bay Area is one of the more beautiful parts of the United States. And, you know, it's got an incredible population of people. I think the housing generally falls short. And there is definitely opportunity there. Mm -hmm. What are your predictions for the future of New York's real estate market? I think, you know, short term, the real estate market's going to be very challenging for sellers. I think there's going to be a lack of consumer confidence. I think a lot of people have left New York because New York is a very unfavorable tax place. The tax rate is incredibly high. And it's almost like the local government has done everything in their power to dissuade people from coming to New York and buying. And But New York is very resilient. And it is one of the top global cities. And I think long term, the city will rebound. Values will go up. There will be opportunity for the next 12 to 24 months to step into the market and buy things that maybe were overpriced that now have adjusted or opportunities where you can get in at a level and see appreciation over the next five to 10 years. Nice. And do you have any final tips for our listeners before we end our show today? Do what your parents tell you to do. Yeah. Be an honest person. Stay at home. And I mean, stay healthy. Be, you know, use common sense. Common sense is unfortunately not that common, but, you know, I think be a sponge for information, do the right thing, listen to what your parents have told you, and that should stand you in good stead. Yeah. And I would say to reiterate what you said earlier, don't waste time. So even though right now it seems like you can just take a huge long break, you should be following up with your old contacts just to keep in touch and stay relevant so that when this is all over, you can get back to work ASAP without having that, you know, having to restart from scratch. Right. Don't be that guy who's sitting on the couch now eating potato chips, watching Netflix going, oh, this is happening to me. This is terrible. You know, get up, be motivated, create a routine, exercise, stay healthy, eat properly, stay motivated and do the things now that you never had time to do that you always wished you could do and take advantage of this. 
personally, I'm actually taking some Python classes again to you know learn, relearn how to do machine learning because I'm just so bored. You might as well learn a new skill. I would love to do that. That stuff is fascinating. Yeah. But I've got so many other things that I'm doing. Like I'm finding now that my days are running out of time. You know, I'm like, it's, it's nine o'clock at night and I'm like, oh, I had these things I wanted to do and I haven't had enough time to do it. So, you know, use your time wisely and yeah, don't mope about and woe is me, stay positive. As difficult as that can be during times like this, I get that. It's very, very difficult for everyone. Exactly. Keep a positive mindset, meditate and be productive. Right. All right, Sean, how can people get in contact with you? They could go to my website, seanosher.com, S-H-A-U-N-O-S-H-E-R.com, and sign up there for my newsletters, my classes, et cetera, et cetera. And then I'm on Instagram, same thing, Sean Asher. My company's website is corenyc.com, and my phone numbers are on there. I answer every call. I respond to every email, every instant message, because responsiveness is the key to success. And I look forward to hearing from anyone who's got a question that I didn't answer on this podcast. Yeah, I definitely recommend everyone to go check out the website. There are some amazing listings on there and they're all actually part of this company. So they're pretty great. Thank you. Yeah. So Sean, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Sean, it was great uh, being a guest. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. It doesn't matter if you're dealing with a regular client or a celebrity you need to take care of them equally. To be successful in any business, do what your parents have been telling you to do since you were little. Be honest, have a high standard of integrity, be on time, and do what you say you're going to do. You're in business, so you need to be self-driven. Follow these steps, and you'll be able to create a successful career in the real estate industry. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, Join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.